We had a week off of Luke last week. If you uh, missed John Dunning's preaching last week, we got it online. You can go back and listen to it. It's great. I wish, really encourage you to do so. Uh, but since we had a week off last week, I did want to give you a quick review of what we covered in the first part of chapter 2 of Luke, and so you kind of realize where we're picking up now. So uh, in the most simplest of terms, Jesus was born, and he was laid down into a manger, and then angels visited shepherds in a field, and they sang this glorious uh, chorus of, of glory to God in the highest, and then the shepherds went into the city to see baby Jesus and to meet his parents. Uh, the passage then ended with Mary pondering in her heart, her heart everything that she'd learned about this new child of hers, her son, uh, that was uh, relayed to her through the shepherds from the angels, ultimately from the Lord. And so then picking up in verse 21 today, we're, we're going to read our passage in, uh, in four parts. I'll, I'll tell you that so that we're real fresh with the text in front of us before we actually uh, expound it. So uh, follow along though as we begin reading in Uh, Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Lord, your word is wonderful. Help us to see that this morning. Enlighten our minds to understand it and to apply these, these holy scriptures to our life of faith this very day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So for the second time, and and just like John the Baptist, we see that Jesus is actually named on the day that he receives the sign of the covenant, the day that he he gets this this mark of his entrance into the the community of God's people, uh, which at that time was was circumcision. And again, I'll, I'll make the offer to you. If any of you ever wish to reveal your child's name at their baptism as they're rec- receiving the sign of the, of the covenant, by all means, let me know. We can, re- we can bring back this tradition, right? It's not a biblical requirement, but wouldn't that be fun? So that offer stands to anyone who will take me up on it. Um, the next thing that we, we see here then is this family is traveling, and this time it's not as far as we saw before. Uh, they're traveling five and a half miles uh, to, to the city of Jerusalem, to the temple. That'd, that'd be a bit like just walking across our town. Uh, I think Manhattan is six miles from east to west all the way, so just about that. And, and they do so to keep the Mosaic Law. That's their motivation, of, uh, to take part in these two ceremonies that are mentioned there in verse 22. And the first of those ceremonies is, is in accordance with Exodus 13.2, which says that, uh, that they are to consecrate to me all the firstborn. And the reason this was to do was there to bring it to the Lord and present to the Lord. And it was a way of acknowledging that this child that we have is, is by virtue of God who, who alone can actually create life. That's the first ceremony. The second ceremony was in, in relation to purification. This is the kind of thing that sounds really weird to us. But under the law of Moses, people were ceremonially unclean for a number of, of activities. 
uh, things they've done, diseases they might have had, if they touch certain things, maybe like a dead body or something, uh, or, or because of various bodily discharges. If you go read through the book, you'll, you'll see all sorts of things that seem strange to us, but was the law of God at the time. And in Leviticus 12, the, the law stated that after giving birth to, to, to a son, a woman was ceremonially unclean for seven days and then had to wait another 33 days before she could go to the, the temple for this, this purification and, and be able to enter into the sanctuary. Again, this sounds odd to us. Uh, however, after those 40 days, she, she was to bring a one-year-old lamb for a burnt offering and one pigeon or one turtle dove for a sin offering. The priest would sacrifice these animals and then he would declare her to be clean ceremonially. So Mary and Joseph, they, these are godly parents, and they're desiring to keep the law uh, as closely as they can, or completely. Uh, and, and did you notice something, though? The, the law actually states to bring a lamb, but it never mentions the lamb in this passage here. Instead, it listed it a little different. It says instead she, she ends up bringing either two turtle doves or two pigeons. There's no lamb mentioned. You see, in Leviticus 8, um, it says of Jewish mothers, it says this, or Leviticus 12, 8, if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take the two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. What, what this is telling us is, is, once again, that Mary and Joseph are poor. And this is just another reminder to us of this, the great humility of Christ coming in the incarnation, even from the point of his death, even to the family that he, he comes into. You see, certainly there's some providential irony here that, that the mother of the child who's going to be called the Lamb of God, could not afford to sacrifice a lamb to God at his birth. Maybe it's less ironic. Maybe it's just beautiful the way we see God working this way. I do want you to take note before we move on here that, that even from his birth that Jesus kept the law perfectly. It's a big part of his ministry, his life, of everything he does for us. But even from his birth, he, he keeps it perfectly. As uh, Pastor Bishop Hall once put it, he who was above the law would come under the law to free us from the law. So if you will, look back at your Bibles. We're going to move forward. We're going to learn about this man named Simeon. It looks like Simon at first, but it's Simeon. Um, starting in verse 25. Follow along and I'll, I'll, as I read. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit to the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he, he took him up in his arms, and he blessed God, and he said, and wait a moment, we're, we're going to come back to that in a moment and read what he says, but, but first... I mean, you read this explanation of, of Simeon. You ever, you ever wonder if someone were to write about you, how they would introduce you as a character, as a human being, as a, a per historical person, introduce you into the story they're telling you about. You know, you, you hear that and you kind of wonder, would it be anything like Simeon, in, Simeon is described here? He was a righteous and devout man. You see, he's, he's living by faith in the promises of God to send a redeemer. That, that's what we're talking about here. Three times we, we see here the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of Simeon. It, it's mentioned here, this is, a, this is before Pentecost, right? So we're talking, uh, this is a unique act of the Spirit at this point. 
uh, and we're told that the Holy Spirit was upon Simeon, and the Holy Spirit reveals that he would not die until his eyes have, have, have seen the Messiah. And then finally, the Holy Spirit sends him to the temple at the proper time so that indeed he ends up seeing Christ. Now, Simeon's life has, has been one of patiently waiting for this promise to be fulfilled. It's an odd thing to do. I, I can remember after watching Back to the Future Part 2 back in 1989, which tells you just how old I am, um, being told by my peers, and many of you probably have this same experience, that these hoverboards are going to be available in 1992. As a kid, three years is a long time to wait, but the idea was they're really going to be here. I cannot wait till 1992. And then 1992 came. No sign of hoverboards. But we were told by 1995, these hoverboards are going to be released. And, and, and I've now been waiting nearly 30 years for a pink Mattel hoverboard, just like in that movie. And there is still no sign of these things really coming to existence. You see, uh, one of the things that we find, though, is that the longer we wait for anything, anything that we, we think is promised to us, the more prone we are to lose hope that it will actually happen. My, my hope is in the rumors of a bunch of uninformed kids, and eventually I stopped expecting to ever get a hoverboard. Simeon, on the other hand, has been trusting in the Word of God, and he never gives up hope. In a sense, that's what it means to be a believer. Waiting in faith for God to really do what he has promised he will do for us. Simeon is waiting, you know, his, his waiting is, is more like the way that you and I, if your faith is in Christ, are waiting for the second coming, the return of Christ. I mean, could you imagine if for a moment, if, if, the, if somehow God spoke to you and told you that, that you could not die, you would not die until Jesus returns a second time. If you knew that to be the case, you, you, you can imagine you'd be constantly, you know, looking up to the sky, wondering, is, is this going to be the day? See, the text doesn't say it to, explicitly to us, but, but you can imagine, you know, Simeon watching mothers bring their children to be presented in there. And don't think creepy like we would today, but, but, but looking into the eyes of these babies and, and thinking to himself, wondering to himself, is this the Messiah? Is this the Messiah? Or as Jesus is called in verse 25, is this the consolation of Israel? You see, that's a, a title that the Jews use for the Messiah because uh, at the most basic level, consolation means comfort. The comforter of Israel. It's a, it's a reference to Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2. Uh, Anna, who we're going to read about in just a moment, makes a reference to the exact same passage. And that passage there says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This promise of a comforter, what was to Israel, like a, like a, uh, a fresh blossom on an early summer fruit tree. And the birth of Jesus is the ripe and ready fruit, the promise fulfilled, the waiting is over. You see, Simeon recognizes Jesus is the Messiah. And so here in this temple compound, this, this old man holds Christ, right? He holds the Messiah in his very hands and, and he lifts him up. My kids have been doing this puzzle this week with the Lion King on and I can't help but picture the, you know, eyes Nothing like that, though. Nothing, I'm sure. Um, 
But, but can you imagine, just, just for a moment, can you picture this moment in Simeon's life that he's been waiting for, may, maybe with trembling hands, maybe with tears in his eyes, and, you know, the world around him just stops for a moment. And the Lord Jesus is the only thing he's focusing on. He doesn't see just a baby, he sees his Savior. And this is what Simeon prays out loud. You can follow along there in verse 29. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. What a strange thing for his parents to hear. I know you you might be thinking they're getting used to it, but it's now been, what, 40 days since they last heard one of these prophecies? At least it's recorded in Scripture. You you, you know, this is all being said out loud in a a public place. You, you, You can wonder, you know, is Mary leaning into Joseph and asking, you know, Joe, people are looking at us. What a weird situation. What do we learn from this, though? First, Simeon's reflecting on his own death in this moment. That's for sure, because the condition of his death has just occurred. Right? You're almost invincible until you lay eyes on the Christ for him. But now he's actually laid eyes, and he knows it's coming, and he's not afraid. J.C. Ryle says at this moment, he says, Simeon speaks like a person for whom the grave has lost its terrors and the world its charms. He speaks as one who knows where he is going when he departs this life, and he cares not how soon he goes. Listen, if you have eyes of faith to to see Jesus as your Lord, then you are prepared to die. No matter how old or young you are, you are prepared to die. And if you do not trust Jesus as your Lord, then you are not prepared to die. No matter how old someone might be, you might be. No matter how much pain someone might be, they are not prepared to die. And so in a very real sense, the call of the Great Commission on our lives as Christians is to prepare people of all ages to die. To help them understand who, who Jesus is and what it means to, to trust Him with faith. To, uh, to pray and to ask the Holy Spirit to give them eyes of faith to see Jesus just as Simeon sees Jesus here in verse 30. When he, when he says that, that phrase, he says, My eyes have seen your salvation. And he's talking about Christ. Now the rest of this prophetic statement here is, is quite significant in the history of redemption because we see in verse 31 that, that the gospel is for all peoples. Now that sounds perfectly normal to us. That would have been an odd thing for the Jewish people to hear. Now, now the plan was always, uh, God's plan was always to redeem the world beyond Israel, but, but now it's actually happening. Now he's starting to reveal this. And the global scope of the gospel then is just unfolding in, this, in these words as they come out. It, it says here that Jesus is the light of revelation to the Gentiles, meaning, uh, meaning those who are not Jews. If you don't happen to know that you're Jewish, someone in your family is telling you, yeah, we are ethnically Jewish, then that's you. You're a Gentile. There is no other option. See, as it's talking about revelation here too, it's, it's revelation is about showing and, and knowing the truth. Right? You can imagine if you're in a dark room that, that revelation is the lights coming up. That suddenly you can see what's in there, what's, what's written on the floor, what furniture is in there. Things of that nature. 
showing what's always been there, but was simply hidden in the darkness. And so the, the revelation here is, is not for Israel, because they already possess God's revelation. It's already been presented to them. <clears throat> this is a fulfillment of Isaiah 49, verse 6. When, when God says this, he says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And that's Isaiah, right? That's Old Testament. I... I think for us, one of the things we need to do as, as Christians on the other side of the cross is, is simply to look at this and, and praise God for, for, for nearly every one of us a Gentile. This is you being included in the plan of God's salvation. And there's a word for Israel here as well. He says, glory to your people Israel. Glory to your people Israel. Christ is glory for God's people Israel at this time. Despite so many of them are going to ultimately reject Christ. <clears throat> and so Simeon turns from Jesus and to his mother. And, and listen as I read in verse 33 what he says. He says, And his father, and, or well, first there's an introduction. He says, And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them. And he said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So Mary and, and Joseph have marveled at the global reach of redemption, but then there's this cryptic method, me, message made to Mary. At first he says, you know, Jesus is going to cause many to fall and many to rise in Israel. This, this is a prophecy, right? That's what's happening here. Uh, many of the Jews in arrogance and pride and unbelief will reject Jesus and thus the fall of many in Israel. As 1 Corinthians 1.23 will later say, we, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, to Israel. Other Jewish people who, who humbly follow Jesus, they are they're going to rise. That's, that's what it's talking about here. In other words, some will receive Jesus by faith and some will reject Jesus with unbelief. That's still happening today. What about you? Do, do you receive Jesus and rise or reject Jesus and fall? It's a hard question. Verse 34 says that Jesus is a sign that is opposed the Jews will desire a sign, and Jesus is indeed the sign that God gives. And many Jews will oppose him with all their might. And then in verse 35, it states that the heart of men and women will reveal it. How, how someone responds to Jesus tells us so much about them. It, it tells us whether they love God or if ultimately they hate God. And unfortunately, those are the two options. There is no neutral position. Also in verse 35 is this one sentence that's just for Mary. It's one of the oddest statements that we see here. He says, a sword will pierce through your own soul. What an uncomfortable statement. Up to this point, Mary's only heard of all the wonderful things her son's going to do. And now there's this, this mention of, of what Mary's going to experience by being the mother of the Messiah, Christ. These words were going to come back to her after, often during her life as she grieved by the, uh, was grieved by the widespread rejection of Jesus uh, that he would receive. But, but she'd remember these words most profoundly the moment that, that she stood before a Roman cross and looked up to see her son nailed to it. 
dying and unable to do anything to help him. That will be the day Mary's soul is pierced through. None of the Gospels record a single word that Mary spoke that day. Not one. But we know she was there standing looking at this. We can only imagine the emotions that this mother felt coursing through her veins as she just helplessly looked on her, her son. And it's a mixed thing. It's a weird thing. The, the joy of salvation would come, but only after the pain of Christ's sacrifice upon the cross. Let's look at this last portion today. I'll, I'll read, begin reading in verse 36. And as I do, I, I want you to consider again, you know, we talked about with Simeon, but also with, with Anna here. How might someone describe your life? As we listen to the way Luke describes Anna's life here. <clears throat> and there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. The Lord ordained that both the man and the woman would recognize and testify that Jesus is the Messiah who has come into the world. Anna is in the temple at the same time as Simeon. She would have seen this stuff going on. She's, she's listed here as a prophetess. Do you know what that, what that means when the Bible speaks of a prophet? A prophetess? Um, we, we have our ideas of what we think a prophet is. I, I remember a few years ago while watching a baseball game on TV with my children, I, <clears throat> I kept telling them everything that was going to happen in the game. I'd say, he's going to strike out, and he's going to homer. This guy's going to ground into a double play. And it would happen exactly as I said it would happen. Exactly. Eventually, one of them with wide-eyed wonder said to him, Dad, you're a prophet. I had to tell him what was going on at that point. See, I'd, I'd noticed that the, the TV was about a minute behind my phone app on telling me everything that's going on. So I was just telling them what had already happened in the world uh, a few minutes afterwards, a minute afterwards. See, anyway, though, the predicting the future, that's the way we tend to think of a prophet. That's what they do. Um, you know, but that's not a biblical understanding of it. A biblical understanding of the word prophet is when someone receives a message from God and then tells that message to others. The Puritans, in fact, often referred to the act of, of preaching and teaching and evangelism as, as prophesying. And all they meant by that was that you're taking God's word and the written scripture and, and then pro proclaiming it and teaching it to, to others. So, so now nothing is, is, is significant about Anna's father here. I know we like to dig into the history. Uh, Fanuel, his name means face of God, but um, that's interesting, but not to the story here. Her tribe of Asher, there's nothing that really ties in anything that is able to be discerned. Uh, she was married around 12 years old. She lived with her husband for seven years, and sadly he died young, and she never remarried until she's now at this point of 84 years old. Like Simeon, we learn a great deal about her character find it interesting in scripture how much whenever we're, we're introduced to a new person, a new, uh, new individual, that we hear about their character. Uh, that's not typically the way we introduce people today. We tell them this guy does this for a living, or this woman does this for a living, or who their relatives might be, but we rarely introduce people with their character. And yet we, we learn about her, her character and her relationship with God. And it spends, it says all the time, it doesn't mean literally every single moment at the, at the temple, but most of her time at the temple worshiping, fasting, and praying. It's a way she's relating to God. All of Anna's efforts were not trying to earn God's love or his favor. She was merely full of joy because she knew the Lord and wanted to worship the Lord. 
But what Luke wants us to see about Annie here is simply that she is a devout woman of faith. And then the moment that Anna lays eyes on Jesus, she did what everyone who comes to Jesus should do. She gives thanks to God for the gift of salvation, and then she begins to tell other people about Jesus and the redemption that he has accomplished for us. That's, that's what we do with good news. All good news, right? Not just, not just huge good news like the gospel, but I remember the moment I learned that Chick-fil-A this year was going to be giving away breakfast items the first and third week, uh, or Tuesday of every month. I told everybody I know. Why? Because that was good news, right? And you see, the, the more that we know, the more we know and the more we love Jesus, the more we want to see others do the same, our, our joy just overflows in verbal praise. <coughs> tell you a story on uh, December 3rd, 2011, during the halftime show of the SEC. I know we don't talk about the SEC in this town, but uh, at the halftime of the SEC championship game, Dr. Pepper had this contest uh, where, where people had to throw a football through a, a little bitty hole. And, and that day, the, a girl named uh, Yvonne Padilla Rodriguez made 13 footballs through a one and a half to, foot diameter hole from five yards away. And in doing so, she won $100,000 in scholarship money for college. The moment she realized she had won, she just began to cry on national television. She had tears streaming down her face, and the sign line reporter stuck the mic in her face and asked her, Vonda, tell me how important this is to you. And Yvonne responded, this is so important to me. And still, with tears down her face, she, she continued. She said, Dr. Pepper is seriously the best thing that has ever happened to me. Listen, if you're a Christian, Jesus is the best thing that's ever happened to you. Ever. And if you don't feel that and know that in your heart, it's It's true. It's absolutely true. And, and how do you react? How do you live in response to the fact that Christ is Christ and Christ is Christ for you? That, that, that's the overwhelming theme of this passage. We, we see in these people as they, yes, we're revealing who Christ is, but we're also seeing that uh, who Jesus is. Every time one of these people see who Jesus is, it just gives them absolute joy. Simeon overflows with joy when God opens his eyes to see who Jesus is. Anna is just bursting forth with joy when, she, she reveals, uh, when God reveals to her heart who Jesus is. And I ask, what, what about us? Has God given you eyes to see and a heart to know that, that God is real, that Jesus is your Lord who has taken your sins upon himself and been sacrificed so that, so that you will live forever with him? If that's so, that's because God has filled you with His Holy Spirit. He, he's revealed to you what, what a natural person simply cannot see and cannot know. But I'll ask, does, does your heart still marvel at this? Does your heart marvel at, at what you're learning here, what you know to be true? You know, so your job stinks. So your health's not as good as it once was. Maybe you wish you had romantic love already at this point in your life, or you knew what you wanted to do with the rest of your life. You know, these are things you might wish for, but maybe your life is, is simply all sorts of not what you wanted it to be. Listen, as Christians, our, our joy is not contingent upon those things. Not to say those aren't important in our life, but our, our joy is not contingent upon those things. Our, our joy is contingent upon the Savior who has come and redeemed us and who will come again to bring us into his fully fulfilled kingdom. 
And let me give you one last bit of advice before we pray, closing prayer here, rather. Um, <clears throat> whether you're a Christian or not, just, just listen to this. If you're struggling with joy today, at this time in your life, don't, don't start looking for joy. Don't. You know, you're never going to find it that way. You're never. Instead, look to God. Look to his glory. Look to, at Jesus revealed to you in the scriptures. Look at the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus and the grace of the Lord. And the more that you seek the glory of God, the more you'll see who God is and how he's loved you, the more that joy will find you. Let's pray. God, thank you for the testimony of Simeon, for Anna, for their godly lives, for their overflowing joy at the coming of Christ and in the world. Lord, give us such joy to be your people, to be saved from sin and eternally secure because of all that Jesus has done for us, even the bestowing of faith into our hearts. God, grant us through the Holy Spirit eyes to see your glory. It's in Jesus' glorious name we pray. Amen.